0: The LARB Radio Hour is a free weekly podcast of the Los Angeles Review of Books, a reader-supported nonprofit publication. To support our continued work on this show in print and online, please consider donating or joining as a member today at lareviewofbooks.org backslash radio hour. Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and I'm joined in the studio today by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. So on this week's show, we have a conversation with Ross Gay about his latest book, The Book of More Delights, a collection of short essays that offer reflections on everyday life taken from the vantage of Gay's everyday experiences. This obviously, as some listeners may know, it's a second volume that came out of the project that was The Book of More Delights, in which he set out to write an essay every single day for a year. And one of the things that I really appreciated about reading this book, especially now, and I don't know if this is your experience, Medea, but it reminds you to center joy or reminds us of the everyday pleasures and joys that are just available to us in our mundane walk about life. And at a time like this, when it literally feels like in both metaphorical and very real terms, the world is falling apart or is collapsing... I think it's important to remember that and reading the essays in this collection made me recall just how much I tend to lose that sense of everyday joy because of just the the weight of everything else in the world right now. So this was a nice reminder to kind of put that down and smell the roses, I guess.
1: Yeah, it really is. And I actually tried it on my own for a couple of weeks Mm. Um, over the summer where I decided that I would do what Roskay did, which is follow his constraints, that I would write a delight by hand in a journal every single day. And it was a very lovely practice. Mm. Even on and some days were hard, you know, there were some days where I was like, No, there's nothing delightful about this day. <laughs> this day <laughs> This day is morning to night trash. But when you force yourself to sit down and do it, you do figure out certain ways in which, yeah, even some small, small little bit, even in a day when you are feeling pretty down, you can usually find something, even if it's just, like, the taste of your coffee or
0: some sunshine. Well, so I have to ask, why did you stop doing it?
1: Well, I stopped it. Well, so we were in Maine while I was doing this, and I didn't have cell service and I didn't have internet. And so Mm. I had a lot of time on my hands to appreciate the world around me. (laughs) And now I'm in New York and there's just nothing to appreciate. (laughs) There's just, there's exhaustion. No, I mean, there is, I could certainly keep doing it, but I have found it harder to do it now that I have access to a functional device.
0: So this is one thing that I would definitely recommend. So I had like a, a journaling practice that I started at the beginning of this year. And <laughs> similar to, I kept it up for a while. And actually, your sharing today makes me want to jump back into it, because I think that's an, an excellent kind of way to unwind at the end of the day. But I actually used, and I still have it, there's a, a very, very old school device called an AlphaSmart, which is uh-huh. similar to... This is very nitty-gritty, but there it's similar to a new product on the market that's definitely designed for our age group but is ridiculously expensive called the FreeWrite and it is basically it's electric typing, so it's typing into a screen, but it has no connectivity. Well, the AlphaSmart that I bought has no connectivity to the internet. So it's mm. literally just they were designed I think to help students learn how to type but basically you just type into this thing and you see it on a simple lcd display but what's cool about it so to speak is also what's not cool about it which is that it has no social media apps it doesn't have email it doesn't have alerts it's literally just like having a typewriter but with no paper and i found that i was reminded of when you were saying yeah when i was in maine there were no distractions i actually found writing that way to be really freeing Even if I couldn't keep it up for like the long haul and I'll jump back into it and report the results later if they last. But I would definitely encourage anybody to do that kind of thing. Either find something that is distraction free typing if you need to type or like Medea is saying, just writing out things at the end of the day in longhand. It's like a way of disconnecting that we may have had during our childhood but which does not exist anymore when like everything is connected and constantly pushing us new information or things to to distract us so i will take your sharing as a way to jump back into that practice and share the possibility of doing so with our listeners
1: that sounds great and let's share the interview we did with ross
0: yes let's do it okay We're thrilled to have Ross Gay with us on the line today. Ross is an award-winning poet and essayist whose work centers on the intersecting explorations of language and joy, among other things, of course. And he is also professor of English at Indiana University in Bloomington, which has a special place in my heart because that is where my mom went to grad school. She got her master's in English at GOIU. So I don't remember Bloomington, but I was alive and there. But besides all of that, Ross is also the author of the National Book Award Finalist and National Book Critics Circle Award-winning Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude, as well as the author of several collections of essays, including The Book of Delights and Inciting Joy. He joins us today to talk about his latest book, which is, as it were, The Book of More Delights, a second installment of the previously mentioned Book of Delights, which was published before Ross, us, and the rest of the world were plunged into the COVID-19 pandemic, which I think is an interesting, like, how do we have delights before and then also after? Well, we're never after the pandemic, but after the onset of the pandemic. Like its predecessor, the Book of More Delights features a collection of short essays that bring into focus the small wonders we so often overlook in our busy lives. Among them are Looking at a Neighbor's Fruit Tree. There's lots of interesting writing about the purpleness and the plumpness of figs that I particularly appreciate, as somebody who appreciates fig trees in Southern California, but also a discovery of self maturation in an impromptu pickup ball game and appreciating the toothy feel of a stolen notebook that I really want to talk to you about later. But moving between the intimate record of Ross's quotidian experience and the larger political, social, and philosophical questions that saturate and surround those experiences, the Book of More Delights revels in everyday joy, and sometimes also, as we'll talk about, pain and horror, of a world that's right at our fingertips, if only we'd take the time to notice it. Thanks so much for joining us, Ross. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. I'm glad to be here. Thank you,
1: Ross. So I think we should just start with how you began this project and the first book of delights.
2: Yeah. You know, I was just um, walking, I was having a nice day. (laughs) I mean, I was in a, at a writing residency in Italy and I was walking from town to the castle where it was. And I was like, sort of noticed myself being like, Whoa, this is delightful. (laughs) And I thought, I should write a little essay about this little delightful thing. And then just like that, I thought I should do that every day for a year. Write about something that delighted me. It was like that, which is why I often say what I didn't think it It was sort of fought for me. That's how it started. That's really what it do it for a year. See what happens.
1: Explain to the listeners what the constraints are.
2: Yeah, because I am. I think this is I think I'm saying the truth because I am not. You know, there are some people who, who give themselves a daily task and do it. Like, doesn't matter. They could say it's four hours. I knew I'm not quite that person. So I said, let me do it a half hour. I had to draft the essay in a half hour. I'll write them by hand. I can't remember exactly why that was by hand. That might've been for ease. I wanted it to be easy and daily. So they had to be every day,
0: write them by hand and draft them in 30 minutes or less. Can you... Talk a little bit. So, you wrote one of these essays every day for 365 days. What was the process of going back over them and kind of because obviously there are not 365 essays in even across both books, right? So, what was the selection of kind of pairing them together? They do seem to follow a chronology, but there sometimes two weeks will go by, and there's definitely like moments where I was like, I wonder what he was doing during those two weeks.
2: I mean, one thing was just basically like I wanted to choose the best essays. That was the bottom line. The way that came about was sort of like, um, you know, like what's the quote unquote the best. But then like there might have been where I'm talking about basketball four times. And it's sort of like, okay, maybe just the two basketball essays. Or there was a while there where I was writing a lot about like music, pop music. And I was like, okay, we can't have every single. So there's like one about new edition that didn't make it in. There's one about Luther Vandross that didn't make it in. They went elsewhere. But I had to sort of do that kind of whittling down. I'm trying to think the other ways that the selections were made in terms of like what constitutes a good essay for me. It is something that's like, if I know something's delightful and I know why it's delightful, or if I know something, I'm usually not going to be that interested in the thing that I write about it. But if I write about it really with a question, Like, really, why is it that high fives with strangers is interesting to me? Or, you know, really, why is it that any number of things is is interesting to me? As opposed to like, oh, yeah, I know I like this thing. So let me explain to you why. That's tedious and boring to me. But I do that. So I cut that shit out.
0: Did your writing process get different as you went along through this year? Like, I'm trying to think that it's like there's... Maybe it even varied by day, you know, some days you're like, I just got to get through it. I need to give an account of something that happened to me. But were there moments where you felt more like, oh, I'm shaping this, I'm giving it a shape as I kind of try to record my day?
2: I think there's probably is, I can't think of an exact example, but I think there probably is. One of the things that I do realize, and this happened in the first book and it happened in this book too, is that over the course of the year in writing these things, I kind of get better at it, quote unquote, better. Like better is not always better. So the essays could get longer without it being very difficult for me to make them longer. I can kind of veer around in ways that at the beginning, I'm still kind of like getting my traction and just sort of like noting the thing, wondering about the thing. As it goes along, I'm able to sort of like note, wonder, veer very far, kind of come back and all like sort of quickly, you know. So there's some kind of, I don't know, trust or something. It's a skill. I mean, you know, like I've mainly before writing these essays, I didn't really write very many essays, and then now I've written hundreds of essays. <laughs> so it's kind of like I kind of kind of have the hang of it, and you know, having the hang of something can also fuck you up. It can also make you not good at it
1: on that note. i I think I was also wondering what your relationship is between the writing of these daily essays and your poetry. It struck me that the constraints you set up for yourself here are in a certain way, also poetic constraints or can be interpreted as such. You don't have feet or meter, but you do have other things that you're sort of abiding by. But I was wondering what the relationship is between the two types of work that you do or have been doing.
2: It's funny because I wouldn't, before this book, I wouldn't have thought of myself as someone who's like really interested in form. But now I realize like, oh, I love a formal thing. I love a constraint. But I didn't know that before writing this book, I realized. And that being said, you know, I also, and I think about this a lot too, like I I grew up playing sports and I play a lot of basketball and this and that, all of which are formal games. The reason these games are interesting is because there's an out of bounds and because there's X number of seconds that you have to do this or there's X number. Of, yeah, the older I get, the more I realize like, oh, yeah, I love I love form and it might not look like form to what other people are thinking about form, but I'm, I'm really thinking about it.
0: No, I think there's, there's an obvious like formal element. And I think in at least some of the early essays, you also self-consciously reflect on form as like something that you're, that you're interested in. And yeah, I love that. I mean, form is like, whether it's, I think about this all the time, whether it's like the TV script or if it's the poem or the essay Like they all are ways of telling a story and those constraints give you things to play with so that it's like, you've got the same story, but does the story feel different if you only have 14 lines to tell it?
2: And the thing, like I realized too, the thing that I love is like find a form that isn't identified as a form and then get inside of that for a while, almost like it's a parody. I love parody actually. I love like sort of forms that are so kind of built. But you might not know that they're forms. And then you get inside of them, you sort of replicate them. <laughs> and just by entering into them, like you just put it on like a coat, it's like, oh, this is funny. Like this thing is so, like in the poem of day things, those about the poems. I love those things. <laughs> <laughs> It's such a form and it really invites someone to write a bunch of about the poems, you know, maybe someone might be doing that. Someone between the three of us might be doing that right now, but I'm not going (laughs) to (laughs) say.
0: One thing that I wanted to ask you about, and then I also want to talk a little bit about some of the specific delights and undelights, as you call them, that you kind of tackle in, in this latest collection. But I found as I was reading that one of the, appeals of the collection for me, which I had not expected until I was thinking like, what am I going to talk to Ross about? And, you know, how have I been processing these essays is the analog quality of a lot of them. And it's interesting to me also that you wrote them out by longhand, that that's one of the the formal restraints because there's, so there's like this essay that you have about footnotes and endnotes and footnotes that become endnotes and vice versa. And I think there, your writing touches as it often does throughout the collection, on the tactile. So on things that we can see and feel. That could be paper in a grade book, which again, like I said at the beginning, I want to talk to you about that and what I guess is probably also an interest in fountain pens. But also the physical books that you receive in the mail, cotton socks that you get called out on by a fellow Vermonter. And I'm curious, like, do you find more joy or excitement or delight in, let's call them actual, concrete things versus the plethora of virtual things that we are also constantly interacting with in our daily lives? Like, is there something about the return to the sensual that is also part of the delight here?
2: Totally. And um, one of my favorite delights to read (laughs) as I've been reading these things out is about um, paper menus, real menus. Every single person, I mean, there's probably 11 people in the universe who prefer the little fake thing but yet there's so many places where and i refuse i refuse i'm like no i don't because my phone doesn't do that you know like i can't do that but i'm not gonna if my phone did do that i wouldn't do that it is such a pleasure to be that fucking asshole (laughs) but it's like because there is this the tactile world the world in which you have to like hand things across to each other or point to things or like say, oh, this is the way to go. That's actually called life. And I'm not going to give up on that. I'm not going to give up on that. You know, it's very moving to me and actually the fabric, the substance of life that we touch things that touch each other.
1: Makes me think of that essay about the PR guy that you meet who is working for PR on a VR virtual reality concert for Megan the Stallion. And at the end of it, you know, he sort of walks away. And I feel like you almost bury your hand in some soil and your face in a tree. Like you're almost, it seems to me like you're almost desperate to touch something tangible. And I felt like that moment was really telling in terms of like, I mean, tell me what you were experiencing in that moment, in that conversation.
2: Half panic attack, half panic attack. (laughs) Why? Well, because he was sort of talking about the virtual world. And it was just sort of like the, you could just see, again, like lovely dude, but you could see, oh, this is one of the many examples of the virtual world becoming more and more like the substance of our lives. And that so many of us could start to believe that, oh yeah, school actually takes place on a computer. We have daily exchanges, like maybe you grow some food, you know, imagine that. And and instead of like me giving you this money, <laughs> I'll never have to touch you. You know, anytime I'm on, I'm on an airplane and they say contact less payment as though it's a good thing. Well, it's not a good thing. And so uh, partly I was having a panic attack. <laughs> and then the other thing I was having, as I often do, is like I need to like do the opposite of that. And so, you know, I have a lot of readings in the this next year, like too many, <laughs> too many readings. <laughs> but partly I was like, because there is this kind of virtual world, I was like, anytime I can get into rooms with people. I'll do it. I'll do it. So in a way, that dude kind of really pushed me to be like, yeah, man, do a bunch of readings. Like,
0: do a bunch of readings, you know? I also want to ask about, so there's an essay in here called Hole in the Head Redux, Code Negreading. And this entry is a little bit different than... Some of the others, because it deals with what you call life's undelights. And this, that kind of addressing the negative or the either negative affects, negative experiences, comes up a little bit throughout the collection. But here we see, for example, ongoing racism, which you write about a number of times, economic inequality, labor struggles, right? The awful, all of it. So I'm curious, kind of, what it was like writing the material for the book of more delights, but also going back over it and editing it at a time when what I'm sure readers will feel the same is that part of what's nice about reading your work is that it reminds us that there is actually delight. And especially a lot of the writing that you do about relationships with your neighbors, there's a moment, if I'm honest, like at first I was like, come on, this is a little corny. Like, this guy doesn't really, he doesn't really have, like, this is like some weird sitcom version of this guy's life in Bloomington. Like, I don't believe this at all. But then I'm like, no, that's actually what, like, national polarization, the negative affect sensorium of the news, like, all of it, as we see the kind of U.S. tearing itself apart and hope that the wound heals and we get something better at the other end. But I'm just curious what it was like trying to harvest, and I know that's a bigger literary project of yours, to harvest and demonstrate joy at a time that doesn't always really feel joyful. So kind of how do you navigate that?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. One of the things that I do realize is that there's um, these projects, they have a kind of rhetorical as bigger projects like I kind of imagine these may be happening every five years might not happen but at least the two of them I realize, oh there's some kind of a rhetorical project inside of this meaning I'm making some kind of an argument and I feel like there's a strategy like if we had a longer time and we could kind of hash it out like what the strategy maybe is but among the things that the strategy includes is like like I don't want to be full of shit But I also want to, there's all these things, like I want to be able to talk about serious things, like very serious things. I want to be able to talk about things that people may not be able to talk about. And in a way, it's sort of like the context of the delights is a kind of interesting context for essays, period, because you're sort of preparing a ground for like, okay, this is the first question. The first question is like, what delights us? But then there's a second question, which is like, and there's all of this life, additional life that we need to sort of think about, and how do we think about it, and mixed up with this. But in, in citing joy and in this book, I think one of the things that I'm becoming acutely aware of is that delight has a, it's related to connection, and effectively, and delight has some relationship to connection, and probably delight is some kind of evidence of connection, and it delights us. Oh my God, there's a, a couple cardinals just landed on the line or whatever you have a feeling it's not a feeling of disconnection it's a feeling of connection but there's probably like a lot to say about that so the book in a way is really a meditation on connection again and again and again there's all these things where I'm being shown something or one of the arguments that I'm making in there I'm being given something that then by writing it down I'm sort of further giving away so that we're in this kind of circuit of giving which again is sort of evidence of connection it seems to me that there is a um A deep and abiding effort to make the prospect of us being connected to one another lunacy. Like the idea that we might be connected with people who (laughs) maybe have some other ideas than we do. The prospect of that being possible, it's like insane. And to me, I'm kind of like, you know what? I think that's not actually insane. I think that's actually how we walk around all the time. Like we don't all actually think the same and we don't need to. But the there's a kind of mood in the and you know like I think there's a lot of money to be made on that. It's great profits, like any news show or whatever. It's like like they're all like you know <laughs> fucking full of shit and just like trying to like make each other try to think each other's going to come kill each other. But the other thing is that there is this to me this understanding that we are in fact tend to want to care for one another. That is an assault on modes of capitalism, you might say, that's a violation. That's a real violation to a certain kind of status quo. Like if we, especially if we aren't all like the same little group of people, if we're like, oh yeah, we can share some shit. We got some shit we can share. That's a real fucking assault on a certain kind of status quo. So naturally it makes good sense to be like, oh, all you little groups, (laughs) you better not share because
0: you might affect each other. (laughs) To go back to what I was saying, I think that's where I had, like, a whole, like, turning of the heart, which sounds cheesy, but I think that's part of it. Like, reading that, or it's an early essay, I want to say it's in, like, the first quarter of the book, about fig trees in your neighborhood and your neighbors giving you figs. And there was a a part of me that I was like, okay, this is, like, feels like very public radio, very, like, you know, he's he's like going to go you know he's okay we're like oh we're all connected but then i was like actually that's not so dissimilar from when like we would see friends fruit trees in california and they'd be like oh here's some lemons and like and none of this to your point about the capitalism of it all it's about sharing and it's not they're not family members they may not even necessarily be particularly close friends you may not even know them necessarily more than just like, oh yeah, that's the guy who one time gave me an orange from his tree. And like, I think you're right that there is something. And it reminded me of the fact that we actually do have these moments of connection, but I think we're like trained not to recognize them as such. And that's what I think ultimately even if, as I said, I started out being like, this is corny, this can't be real. I was like, but that's actually part of the resistance to that training that it's like I'm being told that it's like, no, 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 friend neighbors, it is not worthy of an essay to talk about neighbors sharing fruit with each other. But what your essays say over and over again is like, actually, this is a story. It is a story, not only that happened to me, but it's an important story to tell.
2: Yeah, and that's the thing. And partly, I think, that you nailed it right there. Like, I feel like That thing of like, it's not worthy of our sort of intellectual pursuits. It's not worthy of our sort of deepest consideration to attend to the ways that we care for one another in completely innocuous, banal, almost you can't even recognize it ways. It's not, that's not worthy. What's worthy is like that really shitty thing, you know, (laughs) as a consequence, we kind of like trend toward worthiness is equal shittiness. I mean, you're kind of leading me to this is helping me understand this. But what I'm sort of suggesting, I think, along with the plenty of other people, I mean, the suggestion is that actually the care is the worthiness. Like studying the care, attending to the care, it's not at all to negate or diminish the other step that we have to go through because we are people and we fuck up. But there is this other, what I would say more prominent thing, which is that we're inclined to actually sort of just like if you have extra fruit on your tree, extra fruit You're actually a fucking nut if you don't share it. You're actually the sick one. It's not like you're special because you share your extra. (laughs) But I was reading David Graber the other day, and he, he said something It's so obvious. It's like if there's someone who is sitting clearly on the street next to a fruit stand, and you went and you took a piece of fruit and gave it to that person, you just committed a crime.
0: Shit's fucked up. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Ross Gay, author of The Book of More Delights. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation.
1: Thea Lenarducci on the line with us today. Her new book is called Dandelions and she is here to give us a book recommendation. Thea what book
3: are you going to recommend? I'm going to recommend A Life by Guy de Maupassant. It was published in 1883 and I think it was the first of six or seven novels that he wrote in his time. It was the first one that he completed. And it tells the story of Jeanne de Lamar and she's the only daughter of these rich Norman aristocrats in in France and it starts from the day that she leaves her convent school and it's her you know this is the day she's full of excitement and hope she's leaving she's entering the world and she's going to start living you know this is her life is about to start and then you follow it till the very end it's actually it's quite a short book I'm just looking now at my my version I think it's only you know 240 pages of quite small type it's a whole life it's just an incredible, incredible book. and how did you how did you come upon it? I came upon it because I've been thinking a lot about Natalia Ginsburg. I feel like I start sentences a lot that way. I've been thinking a lot about Natalia Ginsburg, but I've been thinking a lot about Natalia Ginsburg, and I know that she she translated books from French. She translated Madame Bouvary by Flaubert into Italian and I then, I discovered that she, the book that she was translating on her deathbed, she died in her seventies in 1991. And the book that she was translating, she was doing the edits on her deathbed was her translation of Maupassant, his book, Her Life. And so that's how I came to it because I was trying to work out, I wanted to see what themes she had, she was kind of immersed in. And, you know, I was also attracted by the irony of someone who's dying, translating a book called A Life. And it had been so long since I'd read French, because I, I studied French at, at university, French and English literature. And it's so long since I'd read a, a classic French book, you know, from the good, honest, late 1800s. <laughs> and I was not disappointed. It's just fantastic. I should say that I was reading it in a translation, not in French, by Roger Pearson. So all credit to him. Yeah. Will you tell us the title of the book again, the author and the translator? A Life by Guy de Maupassant in a translation by Roger Pearson. Thank you so much,
1: Thea. Thank you. We've been speaking with Thea Linarduzzi.
3: Her new book is
1: called Dandelion.
0: You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Now, back to our conversation with Ross Gay, author of The Book of More Delights.
1: This kind of circles back into what you write in the very beginning. And I think it's in your introduction that I think you write for the record I'm not being optimistic, I'm paying attention. And I want to ask you what the difference is there. What is the distinction you're making?
2: Yeah, it's sort of like that thing. I remember when I one time I heard someone say glass half full or whatever. And I was like, the glass is filled to the middle point. <laughs> I was like, it's not like it's half full, it's half empty. It's filled to the middle of it. I'm Just like describing it. And I think the difference is that I think the idea of optimism, I should probably look up the word. I think maybe I have, but I've forgotten it. But I think the idea of optimism is that you don't look at the full picture. I think that's the idea of optimism. And I feel like something like the Book of Delights is absolutely, it's not optimistic at all. It's looking at the full picture the full picture, which includes all of this care. And it also includes all of this brutality. Obviously, if you call a book, the book of delights or the book of more delights, (laughs) not my title, by the way, (laughs) that came from from above. If you call a book that you're going to incline people to be like, oh, you're just talking about delights. But periodically, like I remember someone read, I had an interaction with someone She was hosting a reading or something, I can't remember. And she said, So, in your first 10 delights in the book of delights, you're talking about a buddy who has cancer, you're talking about medical racism, you're talking about like your dad dying, you're talking about, in the first 10 delights. I'm like, Okay, you read the book. You read the book. And there's all this care and all this like wild, amazing sweetness. So, the glasses, the water is like halfway up in the glass.
0: That's, I feel that's such like an instructive way to just like orient oneself in the world. I mean, I'm fascinated by that question of like how we get oriented into the world, right? So we're thrown into it. And then we have a choice sometimes. Like some of it is the nurture thing is like the orientation that your folks give you or whatever. And then your life experiences offer the opportunity for different kinds of orientations. And one of the, the kind of reorientations that I think the book... Offers, which you kind of teed up for me a little bit, is how to reorient one's sense of self and let's say like affective sensorium around loss. So, you talk about, for example, this really beautiful essay about these dream conversations that you have. Well, they are conversations that you have with your deceased father in dreams. So, they're not dream conversations, but it's complicated, but we'll, we'll get there. And I have similar experiences with family members that have passed. And and it's not for listeners, this isn't woo or like, you know, I'm not like on some spiritual rag right now, but that... There's God forbid, God forbid. God forbid, yeah, that's right. Also, that's true. Like there's a lot of, I'm unlearning a lot in the midst of just this conversation. But you know, you also talk about the memory of your grandmother's passing, remembering like other kind of these little details about people that are no longer there. And I'm curious about how you kind of arrived at your own reorientation, or maybe the essays are an effort to do that to move from melancholy and sadness to finding delight not in the loss, but like still delight in the presence that is there, but not there?
2: Mm, beautiful question, yeah. I feel like um, many things, probably. One of them is that the older I get, the more I'm sort of aware that as we change shape, die, et cetera, we're still like, there's a way that I'm still figuring out who my father is. You know, I'm in relationship with my father. I'm still in relationship with these people who I, who, who I love and who have died, who I talk about and write a lot about. And in part, the dreams where maybe we're having an encounter and a dream or something is one of the ways that I'm continuing my relationship with this person who has changed. And one of the ways that he's changed is that he's become like every day that I look in the mirror, I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so there he is. So, which is kind of fascinating, but the, yeah, I don't know. That's a great question. I feel like the, when you said melancholy, I laughed in my head because partly I'm sort of drawn to the melancholy. There's something that I'm drawn to about that, but I feel like there's something about, I don't
0: know, actually. So if melancholy is you know, if we talk about it in like more classic psychological terms, melancholy is refusing to let go of the object, but holding the lost object. So the dead loved one or something like that. But it's debilitating for the subject. I think you find a way to not lose the object. So not to surrender it. It's still with you. You have re-encounters with it. But it's not, it doesn't ossify itself. It doesn't shut itself down. It causes growth, right? Whereas melancholy classically were like, that stasis and decay. You're refusing to give up the dead loved one. Were you always that way? Like, did you used to be more given into melancholy and then you were like, no, I'm done with this?
2: No, it's funny because I still think of myself as sort of a melancholy. Person. Like, But even as a little kid, and me and my partner laugh about this because the songs that I was into were always like, kind of intense. Like, even as a little kid, like, my favorite song on Tracy Chapman's Fast Car was like the song for you. And it's such a mournful, beautiful, but melancholy song <laughs> or like the shit on like, you know, whatever it was. It was just like really melancholy. So I'm, I'm sort of inclined that, but I never, I feel like that person is still here. But I wonder if this is the thing that kind of when you're talking about the object and wanting to sort of keep it, re- whatever the, the relationship with the lost thing. I wonder if. There's a kind of practice that I'm trying to be a part of, which happens in all kinds of ways in my life. But among them, like gardening, for instance, being in relationships, et cetera, that I would like to, I hope to be sort of in relationship to things as they change. And so when you said the word ossify, my hope is that, and my practice, which isn't always, you know, doesn't work out, I think, of course, is that how do you be in relationship? with things as they change, myself included. And so I wonder if that changes the nature of melancholy slash, or the capacity for delight, or what I might say is because of joy, the way that I think of joy, that it doesn't exist without profound sorrow. It doesn't exist without the ground, which is that not the only ground, but among the ground is that, you know, we die. So there's that ground and that connects us actually. That's actually one of the sources of our connection. I wonder if that kind of coming to terms with that, thinking about that, and then thinking about, well, right, and we're all moving toward that. Not only toward that, but we're all changing, we're all in these processes. I wonder if there's some some way when you're if what I'm that kind of thinking addresses your question at all. What do you think? What do you all
0: think? <laughs> I think about that a lot. Like, I think that it's, I love what you're saying about being able to be in relationship with things as they change, which for me is a lot about not trying to control that thing, not trying to shape the way that it changes or the way that it is, or the way that it signifies. And the stuff that you said, you know, I'm I'm lucky that both of my parents are still alive, but what you said about your relationship with your dad, even after his passing, I think is is very resonant, that the more life experience you have, the more your perspective of the things that happened in the past changes. And in my experience, that's almost always been towards more understanding, more compassion, more empathy, more, I guess in a way, like wonder and delight at like Oh, I had no idea that that's what they were going through. Oh, my God, my parents at my age, they had two children. My dad, like, you know, lost his tenure track job, didn't know what he was going to do. Like, could I have survived that? I mean, I know Dea has an even crazier, like, family story that's like, and my husband, I can say, is like, you know, when I hear my mother-in-law talk about emigrating from Cuba when she was eight years old— I'm like, how could I have, and not in a negative, you know, well, she says it in a negative way. I I don't take it in a negative way, where it's like, how could she have survived that? Like, would I have been able to survive that? And it gives me the sense of wonder at both the complexity of people that I have probably taken for granted for a long period of time, just because I was a kid or younger or ignorant or whatever, but at the wonder of human experience that like, here's a person who could have gone through All of this, all of this stuff that was unimaginable to me at a younger age than I am now. And yet, life persists. They do this thing. They like playing cards. They like playing Mahjong. They like whatever it is, you know? Like, all of that has distilled down to to this person that is both an everyday presence in my life, but far more complex than I think I ever gave credit to them for being when I was younger.
1: I think and Eric asked this question, but I'm not sure if we talked about it, that if you are always like this, because I think that there's a way in which, at least for me, my more comfortable place is cynicism, perhaps a little bit of nihilism, (laughs) perhaps a little bit of pessimism. You know, I think about this when I spend time with my partner's family who are Quaker and who are very peaceful and, you know, sort of, you know, listen to each other, don't interrupt each (laughs) other. each other and they talk <laughs> and don't constantly complain about bodily ailments or whatever else they may be going through and after i spend about a week with them i'm like please somebody somebody talk to me of death <laughs> because that is our state because that is the elemental state of people and we must Discuss it. And I see myself being pulled to the darker side. So I wonder about you and your, that's certainly the way I was raised. Absolutely. You know, I talk to my parents for one minute. and It's like, here's the many different things that are going wrong, not just personally, but in the world that we anticipate going wrong, et cetera, et cetera. And then the things that they're sort of blase about always surprises me. But I, so I wonder about your, the way that you grew up and your comfort level with. With joy, I guess <laughs> with joy and and delight, because I do you think that there's a way in which we sometimes grow up uncomfortable around it unused to it,
3: yeah,
2: I mean, it um is for sure the case that this practice or study or whatever arrives at least in part, if not in huge part, on account of like crisis, just being like cracking up and probably like sort of slowly needing to figure out a way how to be okay which is a way of saying that no i don't think that's like uh native to me necessarily maybe partly maybe there's some aspects of it but it's not like any i'm not like built this way or something it's like practice it's sort of why i think it's part of the reason that i decided to do it actually as a way to sort of like yeah do a practice i know i was sort of intentionally doing it in the midst of the kind of the contemporary moment but i think the I think there's a bigger moment, like the moment of my life in which I can feel bad. I can feel really bad. And I have a like a keen eye for what might happen for in the, that inciting joy book. I talk about, you know, at some point giving up, I did Brazilian jiu-jitsu for a little bit and I like cut it out because I was like, defense, defensiveness, being ready to fight is my mode. Like, I don't have to train that. In fact, maybe I should train something else. <laughs> yeah, I should train something else. So that's to say that. And then the other thing is to say, sort of what both of you were talking about, that word wonder. And I feel like it's just like such a practice. You know, you've probably all been in like situations where being sort of like exuberant and like a certain kind of enthusiasm, like, holy shit, what is this? Enthusiasm is kind of like shit on. It's considered woo-woo or it's considered naive or it's considered all of these things. And the opposite of like, I have it all controlled. I know everything like and is a kind of source of misery for sure. And it's also a source of misery, like in relationships, I think. Like when we think we know our closest people, what a relief to be like, oh yeah. And like a relief, I feel like to do it again and again and again, scary relief to be like, oh yeah, I don't actually know you. I actually had to ask you how that made you feel instead of assuming and then doing all kinds of stuff based on that assumption. Anyway, so I sort of, one, want to say that the practice is there for a reason, and it arrived out of duress more than it arrived out of some sort of natural inclination. And then the other thing to say that probably, too, maybe this is, I'm trying to thread this thing here. Maybe the other thing is that that practice arrived because I realized that knowing, realize is the wrong word, some lucky sort of thing, that understanding that knowing everything, thinking you know everything is actually the
0: cause of tremendous pain. Well, as we wrap up, (laughs) I'm going to ask you. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get from rural heavy to rural light very quickly. So there's a very early essay in this collection that talks about the tactile feel of the notebook that you happen to be writing in, which you reveal later is a grade book that has been pilfered from your place of employ. As former PhD students ourselves, Medea and I have definitely written in those exactly those grade books and those awful steno pads that bleed like crazy with any kind of liquid ink. So very much feel the vibe there. But I also was curious, because I was like, oh, I've never heard anybody who is not into fountain pens actually talk about the toothiness of paper. So I was curious if you are someone who writes with fountain pens,
2: I'm not. And I never could quite figure it out. It's funny because one of my besties, he does write with a fountain pen. So I recently, someone gave me a fountain pen actually, and I just gave it to him because he's also like a notebook person. But I write with LePens. For the most part, there's LePens and um, those Muji pens. Those are the ones that I've been using.
0: Oh, but those are liquidy ink. They're like similar to like a Pilot Precision V5 or something like that. Totally. Totally. Yeah.
2: And to come back to the woo-woo, it I completely endow those those uh, things with mystical power. Like I, (laughs) I go around like, okay, which notebook? One of you has a good poem in you. I know you do.
0: (laughs) Oh, but it's totally true that, like, I mean, I am, su- and we won't talk about it anymore, but I am super into, like, all the fountain pens are basically my OCD on steroids and also my big Libra energy of, like, all the choices, the different weights, the hues, the all the effects of the ink. But it is, like, something that, yeah, when you find that notebook, there was, in fact, several Muji notebooks that when the Muji stores closed down in Los Angeles— I went into like, I mean, it was also the pandemic. So we were panicking for a bunch of different reasons. But the loss of that specific type of notebook because of the way that it was ruled, the way the pages felt, the way that it was bound, the way that you could carry it and it would take a beating and all of that, it is just irreplaceable. I have found a replacement, but it was, of course, another Japanese stationery company. There's something about those notebooks, man. They're just, they really, it really does matter. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely.
1: I mean, it struck me as having this interview that I think this is probably more than I generally share during an interview. And it struck me like, oh, you're good. You're good. You're good at at forging a very, let's say, a comfortable environment for a connection. And one of the things that you do write in your book is that people have started sharing delights with you. Their practices of writing delights down, and that that has been a pleasure that you've had. I wonder just how it kind of feels to see people interacting with your work in this way, because, you know, if you're a poet, somebody wrote a poem, I mean, I would run the other direction. But if they're sharing a delight, perhaps it's a little bit different. So what's that like?
2: That's like one of the things. I didn't realize it, but as I've been reading a lot and people, people do want to. Not always, but they want to share some often if they're moved by the book. And it might be that they've been doing like a little delight practice with their friends too or, or some other kind of practice. And also you want to share heartbreak. And they often want to sort of talk about, it seems, want to talk about how the book has been useful to them in the midst of some crisis, some difficulty. I mean, you know, it's like to have people be like, yo, this is something that I loved. you might love it too. It's never bad, <laughs> you know? It never hurts my feelings. It, it's always like, damn, that's a cool job. That's a cool job, you know, to have people be like, yo, this this thing. Often it's like kind of just a ridiculous, sweet thing that someone wants to be like, I wanted to tell someone this and you might be <laughs> interested. Or sometimes I'm thinking this young kid, this young guy was like pretty boisterous. He's like, yo, 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 you gotta, <laughs> I can't remember what it was. But one thing that I think is really lovely is that once this person came to a reading of mine a long time ago, and I had been writing about, I'd been involved with this community orchard that I was involved with for years, and I'd written a lot about fig trees and this and that, and she asked me my advice. This is back in New Jersey. She asked me, she said, um, hey, do you think a fig tree would grow in a pot? I said, yeah, it'd be great. So this is probably 10 years ago. Just like last fall, she comes to a reading and she pulls up her camera And she said, look at my fig tree. Like you told me I could grow a fig tree in a pot and it had like 150 figs on it. This fig tree. (laughs) What was extra sweet was that the fig trees, I live in Indiana, it gets very cold here. And it's so it's like hard sometimes you need a kind of perfect conditions for the figs to make the fruit ripen all the way. Periodically they do. But it's like twice in the 14 years that I've been growing figs has that happened. So I was like, man, she's she like, basically, I'm now growing my things in pots because of her. <laughs> so that's one. That was really, she was really pumped to show me that. And at first I was like, motherfucker. And then I was like, oh yeah, okay, I guess I'll try that too.
1: <laughs> okay, I think this is a good place to end. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> We've been speaking with Ross Gay, the author most recently of The Book of More Delights. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you. It's fun to talk to you.
1: Thanks for listening to the LARP Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley Vlad.